This morning we're gathered around this candle of peace, and it flickers there next to hope, and it anticipates joy and love and the coming of Christ into this world. But those qualities are not the whole of what Christmas is about. That's not all that we gather around in this season of Advent anticipation. Especially at first, Christmas was more jarring than it was peaceful. It was demanding. It was unsettling. It startled everyone so much that the angels kept having to reassure them again and again, do not be afraid. Yes, the coming of God into the world through the person of Jesus Christ in the place of Bethlehem to bring about the hope for salvation for all people. It was not at first reassuring and stabilizing. It was a jolting awareness for a young mother. It was a startled and unsettled husband-to-be. It was a shepherd trembling beneath the sky. It was a frightening challenge to all of the ways of this world. And we remember all of that so well this morning on the second Sunday of Advent because that's when we hear the abrupt and the startling words of John the Baptizer, prepare the way of the Lord. Yes, every year, the second Sunday of Advent, it takes us out to the wilderness to remind us how the Prince of Peace is related to the prophet of judgment and repentance. He reminds me of the little boy who was learning the Lord's Prayer when he tripped up on the trespass portion. Started stumbling over all of those syllables and ended up reciting it. And forgive us our Christmases as we forgive those who Christmas against us. Yes, John wants forgiveness, repentance, and real abiding change to occur amidst our Christmases. And he thunders with this Advent message, prepare the way. This is the first public appearance of Jesus since his childhood. And in Matthew, it occurs directly following the description of Joseph, Mary, and infant Jesus making their home in the town of Nazareth. So Jesus' appearance to John is the rare gospel story that occurs in all four of the gospels. And even as scholars might dispute some of the historical details of other parts of the gospels, all grant that among the definitive facts of the life of Jesus of Nazareth is that he went out to the Jordan unto John to be baptized. Now I guess that's something that a cousin might do. After all, these two have been connected to each other ever since John leapt in his mother's womb at the news of this coming Messiah. But then this is more than a family connection. This is more than some plan hatched together in childhood. Jesus is associating with John deeply. In beginning his public ministry, he is choosing deliberately to connect his message, his vision of the kingdom, his promise of new life, to connect all of it to this wilderness prophet John and to this cry to repent because the kingdom is near, to this vision of God's coming judgment. Now, John is not the first to shout out this message. Isaiah before him had thundered with this too, sometimes considered the prophet of Advent, 
Isaiah had first proclaimed, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And in chapter 11, which we read together today, Isaiah envisions that when Messiah comes, wolf shall live with lamb and leopards will lie down with kids and calf and lion and fatling together and from a dead, lifeless stump will sprout out a shoot from which this vision can branch. Where we have only known death, in other words, Isaiah can envision new life. Where we have only known the way things have always been and will always be. The prophet can imagine God striking the earth, reorienting relationships, bringing righteousness to the wicked and justice to those who have only known suffering. Well, it had been a while since a voice like that had been heard in Israel. But then comes John, appearing out there in the wilderness space, the wilderness where the Israelites had wandered and wondered aloud if God was really with them. The wilderness that was the home to lonely and frustrated people. People that had learned to survive on the minimal like locusts and rainwater. The wilderness, that place for people that had left the cities and the centers of power to gather out on the edges of things and to dare to dream out there of something new, of change. And Jesus associates himself with this prophet, with this message, in this place. His first public act, his best chance to declare his priorities, his agenda, what he's going to be about. And of all people, he goes out to John. Of all waters, he goes to the Jordan. Of all places, he goes out to the wilderness. Of all messages, he amplifies this voice of repentance and change. And once again this year, he leads us out there with him. Before we talk about me, have you met my cousin? And we hear this challenging word from John on Peace Sunday. We pray for peace we light this candle, but what is it that we're asking for, really? What kind of hope do we really want to flicker in the shadows of this world? Well, sometimes I think that we might be praying for tranquility, for everything to be chilled out, as was so wisely said during our children's time. We might want Cousin John, Uncle Isaiah, to just lower their voices, turn it down a notch, we hear you. It's too loud, it's too long, it's too disruptive. Many of us are just trying to be comfortable, undisturbed in this season. But if it's tranquility and chill or serenity that we seek, well then we're going to need a voice that is different than John's. Or how often are we praying for peace? But what we're longing for is more like catharsis, some sort of release from the troubles that we've known, or a cleansing of our emotions that can help us to feel renewed, but not necessarily change much at all. And if that's what we're after, well then we're going to have to find a message that is different than repent, because the kingdom is near to you. And I wonder how often we light a candle of peace, but what is flickering in us is something more like nostalgia, a longing for a time that we perceive as simpler or idyllic and more candlelit. Hearkening back to memories joyous and full, 
overwhelmed with beauty and emotion and assurance, all good things, all gifts, yes. But if we want the warmth and the glow of the open fire, well, we're going to need a setting that is different than this wilderness. You see, if Jesus wasn't so insistent on leading us always and again out to John, if Advent didn't always come back around and amplify this voice crying out for change, well then we might settle in this season for quiet and serenity, for nostalgia and warmth, and we might then mistake all of these good things for the far greater and more demanding thing that we really need and that we come to know as the Prince of all peace. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once warned of this temptation. Many of you know his letter from the Birmingham jail written specifically to white Christians, to church leaders in, his, in that city of Birmingham, to the moderate leaders whose messages were to wait patiently, things are going to get better, find a way beyond this disruption that you're causing everywhere. Just let us stay here and negotiate things in our own city. Let things change incrementally, little by little. We'll get there. And Dr. King said that he felt the greatest obstacles to the struggle for civil rights for African Americans in the 1960s, they were not the people who were armed and outfitted with water hose and standing behind police dogs. No, they were, the act, they were not the active racist and hateful. No, the greatest obstacles were the passive people. They were the middle of the road people, the quiet, chilled out people. Those who, in Dr. King's words, preferred a, quote, negative peace, which he defined as the absence of conflict rather than the presence of justice. I read Dr. King's letter frequently. Maybe some of you do, too. For me, it is one of those texts just outside our Christian canon that is still sacred. And I reference it regularly, too. You've heard me do that. And in fact, I remember some years ago quoting from the letter in a sermon, after which our good friend, our fellow church member, Esther Matthews, said to me in passing, Hey, have I ever told you about my cousin? Esther's cousin, Earl Stallings, is named in Dr. King's letter from the Birmingham jail with these words, I do commend you, Reverend Stallings. Reverend Earl Stallings was the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Birmingham in 1963, and that makes him one of the eight white pastors of downtown churches who sent the call for unity to Dr. King. This message urging him not to come to their city of Birmingham, telling him that they were going to handle things, asking him not to be too disruptive. And so it was to those eight pastors that Dr. King wrote the letter. They were the initial moderate audience. They were the foreparents of any of us who want that negative peace or who are more devoted to order than we are to justice. But after Dr. King's arrest, Reverend Stallings was filled with some regret. 
He began to want to turn from his cautious hesitation. He wished he had been more brave. He wished he had displayed more of the courage that he thought he had. He repented, you see. And most immediately did so on the very next Sunday. It was Easter Sunday. And he was the only one of those eight white pastors to follow through on a pledge that they had made to open up their churches to all people and particularly to black worshipers. Now, it was the least he could do. But at that time, this single act led to a walkout from members of his church, led to threats from within the community of Birmingham and surrounding, and it prompted Dr. King to write, amidst this challenging letter, quote, I do commend you, Reverend Stallings, for your recent Christian stand. Reverend Earl Stallings' action It ultimately initiated tension in that church and community that led him to resign within the next couple of years. But as is so often the case with healthy tension, it did a lot more than that too. In 1970, Winifred and Twyla Bryant, a mother and daughter who were black, asked to join First Baptist, and when their membership was voted down, 250 people left that church and they decided that they had a vision for something new. And so that group of Christians, conscientious, committed, imaginative, they became the initial founders of the Baptist Church of the Covenant in Birmingham, which recently celebrated 50 years as a healthy, leading, progressive, and justice-oriented church among Baptists throughout the southern United States. Well, have you met my cousin? Which is to say, have you remembered that this peace that we pray for, that we long for, it doesn't just happen. It is not inevitable. We have to work for it. We have to shout out in wilderness places. We have to give some things up. We have to give our all to work like straightening paths. We have to take risks to prepare the way. We have to give all that we can to make hills low and to lift up valleys. We have to listen to those who are proclaiming repentance. And we have to consider how it all calls us to something new. After all, Advent asks nothing of us that was not first demonstrated by God's own love. Because incarnation, the coming of Christ into this world, is itself, of course, a story about disruption and change, about departing from what is stable and comfortable towards something that was more deeply needed. Jesus was in very nature God, but did not try to grasp it, did not try to settle into it, but instead became nothing, took a different form, the form of a servant, was born in human likeness, endured human suffering, Philippians tells us. Jesus could have stayed just where he was, all settled and stable amidst the peace and tranquility that is known so ultimately at this side of our God. But, as it's said so beautifully by the poet R.S. Thomas, 
He looked out at our world, viewing it like a bare tree, surrounded by people holding out their thin arms to it as though waiting for a vanished April to return to its branches. And the sun watched them, the poet writes, let me go there, he said. Let me go. Be right in the middle of that pain, that suffering, that brokenness, that injustice. And it must have been startling, jarring. At times, it was even terrifying. And yet God in Christ came to show us what can yet be. And if we are to know the peace of Advent, it will be because we follow him in that way. And it first leads us out to the wilderness to the prophet who reminds us that if we are to proclaim a message of peace, it must include a vision of the coming kingdom. That if we are ever to sleep in such heavenly peace, we must first be awake and watchful if we are ever to know the serenity and the calm of true, deep, abiding peace, well, then we must first work for it, shout for it, risk for it, give for it, be a clear voice and witness for it. If we are ever to rest, we must first repent and change and be made new. And that's why Jesus leads us out to John right at the start is to remind us that peace has a cousin and it's the justice of God. And so may we, church, prepare that way through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.